0: Poor naked wretches, wheresoe'er you are.
1: If my sweet Harry had but half their The knowledge. quality of mercy is not
0: strained.
1: It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath.
0: You're listening to Hold the Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Hey there, listeners. Thanks for tuning in for our Summer with the Bard at Hold That Thought. I'm Rebecca King, and this week I'm talking to Joe Lowenstein, a professor of English and director of the Interdisciplinary Project for the Humanities and the Digital Humanities Workshop at Washington University in St. Louis. He has a particular story to tell about Shakespeare and one of his rivals, Robert Greene. In telling this story, we will trace the evolution of Shakespeare's own career, the culture of plagiarism and imitation at that time, and maybe even get a sense of the real man behind the plays and poetry that we know and love. To set the scene, Professor Lowenstein says it's important to remember that the theater community at this time was very lively and highly competitive. Playwrights imitated each other, satirized each other, and admired each other in equal measures.
1: Let me tell you about something that happened to Shakespeare around the time he turned 30. There was a writer of prose fiction named Robert Greene. He also specialized in writing about the criminal underworld in London. He wrote a book very near his death called um, A Groot's Worth of Wit, and in it, He surveys the literary scene in London. He's basically churning out pulpy gossip about different writers. And towards the end, he mentions a newcomer, not by name. Later in the paragraph, he refers to this person as the only shake scene in the country. But when he starts out, he goes after this guy as an upstart crow, beautified with our feathers. He's actually borrowing a line from Horace. Horace once described another poet as a crow beautified, decorated with other people's feathers. And Green was taking out after, after Shakespeare and basically accusing him of plagiarism, of stealing other people's pretty stuff, their feathers. It's interesting, of course, that Green was stealing Horace's line to talk about Shakespeare stealing other people's poetry. There's a, a number of other insults that get leveled at Shakespeare in the few sentences that Green churns out. He accuses him of plagiarism, and he accuses him of bombast, of, of copying Marlowe's style, Christopher Marlowe's style, We all know Marlowe as the author of Dr. Faustus, of Tamburlaine. He also made a very weird attempt to put a bit of Virgil's Aeneid on stage in a play called Dido, Queen of Carthage.
0: Marlowe was, of course, another of Shakespeare's competitors at the time. It's never fun to get critiqued, but Lowenstein says this was a particularly bad time in Shakespeare's life.
1: So it was a terrible time in Shakespeare's life. He hadn't been writing plays for a long time. He'd probably been acting for longer. He'd also been adapting other people's plays. And to get attacked like this is kind of insulting. Actually, when this book came out, I think that theaters were closed for the plague. So he's in a lousy line of work. He's not making any money. Then this guy goes after him for plagiarism and bombast. I believe I can't prove it, but I believe he tried to leave the theater, tried to find a different career path at that particular moment.
0: Happily for us, Shakespeare stuck with playwriting despite Green's harsh words. And Professor Lowenstein says that if you look at Shakespeare's next works, he even has a kind of response for Green, but it may not be the response that you would expect.
1: It's weird how he responds to Green. He wrote a play called Titus Andronicus, a gory play, possibly more bombastic than any play then in the London theater. It's kind of as if he was digging back at Green. You want bombast? I'll show you bombast. He wrote Midsummer Night's Dream, which is a play built up out of so much borrowed material borrowed from Chaucer, borrowed from Ovid. It's a play basically beautified with other people's feathers. So I think Green hit a nerve, but the response was to say, you want bombast, you want plagiarism. I'll show you bombast, I'll show you plagiarism.
0: Accusing someone of plagiarism in the late 16th, early 17th century is not as straightforward as an accusation like that today. Of course, back then, there were no laws in place to protect intellectual property. In fact, as Professor Lowenstein is about to explain, the foundation of a young writer's education was copying, or imitation of famous authors. Status
1: of plagiarism in early modern culture is pretty complicated. When a young person went to grammar school, went to the university, he almost, you know, boys went to grammar school, got trained not to write original material, he got trained to copy, to imitate other writers, to translate them, to try and do things the way they do them, to steal their best lines. It was not actually thought of as theft, it was thought of as imitation. You became a great writer by climbing up on top of other people's greatness. It was the way it was done. But in certain highly competitive environments, like the theaters of the 90s, when everybody's competing for attention, that habit of imitation can be stigmatized. I've heard people say, that this is the moment when plagiarism is invented. That's probably not the case. I work on the history of intellectual property, and I work on the history of plagiarism, and what I can tell you is that it's kind of cyclical. There are lots of cultural moments, highly competitive cultural moments, when a system of literary practice that's heavily imitative get stigmatized and transformed into something quasi-criminal. You know, of course, that the notion of actual legal infringement by the borrowing of other people's tunes, other people's ways of putting things, that's not something that develops for another 100 years or so, and it develops slowly. But the informal non-legal stigmatizing of plagiarism comes and goes, and it came in spades within the environment of the theater in the 1590s.
0: Lowenstein notes that it would have stung Shakespeare in particular to be accused of plagiarism, to be accused of not being able to keep up with his competitors on his own, because unlike many of his peers, he had no university education.
1: By and large, writers for the London theatres, the playwrights of London, an awful lot of them were university educated. People who had come to London hoping to be noticed, to get a position at court, to be absorbed into rich people's households as tutors to children. And none of those people, or very few of those people, actually got the jobs they came to London to get. It's like our own students going off to New York to become famous writers or to break into publishing, our students going to LA hoping to get jobs as screenwriters. In the 90s, lots of people like John Lilly, Robert Greene, Christopher Marlowe, uh, George Chapman, they came to London with their fancy university education. And because they couldn't make it in the way they hoped to make it, Instead, they tried to make ends meet by writing plays. And, you know, sure enough, great, great moment in theater history was born out of the work of a bunch of disaffected, disappointed, unemployed young men. Shakespeare competed in that group, but Shakespeare, of course, didn't have a university education. So probably had a slight sense of inferiority and to be dug at by Green the way he was dug at. Uh, probably stung pretty seriously.
0: Now, just because we're defending Shakespeare doesn't mean that we're saying he had a lot of original work. In fact, pretty much all of his stories were stolen or adapted from other people's work. He
1: was not an original writer, not at least for plots. I think you'd be hard put to find across the 30-odd plays that Shakespeare wrote any that have a plot that Shakespeare wrote himself, developed himself. He's a magpie, a crow. He picks up other people's stuff. He reworks them. It's the how of his plays, not the what, that I think is where we should be looking to get the Shakespearean fingerprints. Obviously, he has good taste in the stuff he steals. He doesn't steal junk. He steals some junk, Um, but he's not—he's not an original.
0: However, Shakespeare didn't let Green's words rattle him for very long. From this low point in his life, at the age of thirty, when Green published his critique, to less than a decade later, when Shakespeare wrote Hamlet, Professor Lowenstein notes a decided shift in the Bard's attitude about his work, his competitors and his place within the world of literature.
1: I'm not saying that he retained forever his sense of inferiority. Less than 10 years from the time that Green made his dig, Shakespeare wrote a play about a young prince whose father was murdered. That, of course, is a borrowed plot. And in it, the hero runs into a traveling troupe of actors and he tells them what kinds of plays he likes. He remembers a play that they put on that he admired, a play that adapts some of Virgil's Aeneid to the stage. He's obviously thinking of Marlowe, he's obviously thinking of Dido, Queen of Carthage. In fact, when he asks to have a speech from that play recited, he quotes a first line and he quotes it from Marlowe. Then he says, no, no, that's not it. And he revises it and he remembers some more of the play and then he lets the actor recite the rest of it. When Shakespeare stages that scene, he's remembering Marlowe, remembering Virgil, the great epic poet. And he's remembering a moment in the Aeneid when Virgil is remembering the story of the fall of Troy. And when Virgil is effectively announcing this epic that I'm writing about Aeneas picks up where Homer left off. When Shakespeare writes Hamlet, in this particular moment, he says, I'm picking up where Marlowe left off, and Marlowe was picking up where Virgil left off, and Virgil was picking up where Homer left off. We're imitators, we're in a tradition. We don't invent things, we continue things. And what's especially interesting about that moment is what Marlowe was trying, and what Shakespeare is trying, is to bring the plots and the concerns of epic, the most prestigious literary form there was, and trying to bring that material onto the London stage. The theater is low-class entertainment. They're basically claiming, Marla's asserting, and Shakespeare's asserting, that this low-life form of entertainment, the Elizabethan and Jacobean equivalent of TV, is up to what Homer and Virgil were about. So between that moment of absorbing the insult from Greene and the moment of writing Hamlet, I think Shakespeare came to believe in the theater, however déclassé a medium it was, he came to believe that it was a serious medium and a medium in which one could continue imitatively a tradition that stretched all the way back to Homer.
0: Finally, as a last note to this relationship between Shakespeare and Green, Professor Lowenstein looks at one of the last, if not the last, play Shakespeare wrote that brings the story full circle.
1: A lot of people think that the last play that Shakespeare wrote was The Tempest. It might very well be the last play that he wrote. I think the last play that Shakespeare wrote is The Winter's Tale. It's six of one, half a dozen of the other. The reason that I like thinking that The Winner's Tale is Shakespeare's last play is that it's based on a, a piece of prose fiction called Pandasto, or The Triumph of Time. That piece of prose fiction was written by Robert Greene, who died a couple of decades earlier. The play, The Winner's Tale, is a play about death and resurrection. It's a play with bombast in it. And of course, it's a play, the plot of which is entirely borrowed. Shakespeare is beautified with Robert Greene's feathers in The Winter's Tale. So I like to think of that as Shakespeare's last play, a last way of at once thumbing his nose at Robert Greene, and also of expressing some admiration for Robert Greene's good taste.
0: Many thanks to Joe Lowenstein, a professor of English and director of the Interdisciplinary Project in the Humanities and the Digital Humanities Workshop at Washington University in St. Louis. Join me next week for part two of our conversation to learn more about some of Shakespeare's other rivals, including frenemy Ben Johnson. You can find Hold That Thought and all of our archived episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Subscribe to get all of the latest episodes right on your phone.